0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. So, we have seen some crazy things during the COVID 19 pandemic with regards to energy markets. Remember when oil went negative? But what should we expect as we start to emerge from the pandemic? Is there pent up demand on another front? Are we starting to see renewable and clean energy really start to change the game on a global scale? And how much of a role will the Biden administration play in fostering that here in the U.S.? To talk more about all of this, we reached out to Dr. Scott Jackson. He is a visiting professor at Villanova University in chemical engineering. This is a fascinating conversation. Check it out. So we were fortunate enough to have a conversation uh, several months ago talking about energy and oil. It was actually at a point where oil, at least a portion of the market, had actually gone negative. It was a very odd situation. Kind of give us an a overview here. What's the, the energy landscape now? Because I know me as a layman, I've noticed the last couple of months gas prices have creeped up.
1: Yep, yep, absolutely. So it, it's sort of surprising but I can tell you what, what happened is that the shale uh, revolution has died down to a certain extent. Don't don't get me wrong. It, it, it could very well come back very quickly. The shale producers in the uh, Permian Basin in, in uh, southwest Texas and, and southeast New Mexico were squeezed even before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and basically, I won't say shut down, but there was a drastically reduced activity. Okay. Meanwhile, OPEC realized what was going on. The demand just dropped right off the bottom. And they actually managed to get together and decide, oh, we need to do something about this. So they actually did throttle back production, and they've managed to get the oil prices up. And it's over $60 a barrel right now. So so that's why you're seeing the, the gasoline prices creep up because really OPEC now is is controlling the market in many ways. And and I say OPEC, that includes Russia. Russia is, is in cahoots with them. They, it's called OPEC Plus, even though Russia is not an official uh, member of the OPEC. So at $60 a barrel, that's where really is the Saudi government would like to see it and, and and probably maybe a little bit higher. But as it creeps up, it's inviting other people to come back into the market, particularly the shale producers in the United States. And they don't really want to have that happen, okay? So- so there's sort of this middle ground where the Saudi government, and I say Saudis, I'm focused mostly on that because they really do. They have enough swing production that they can control the market in many ways, and they have enough uh, leverage with the other countries that they can they can try and strong arm people. It is amazing they they had the discipline necessary to control production. They the inventories have been increasing, but still they they've uh, sort of reduced production so that. That there was a balancing act and the and the prices have just slowly creeped up that that's great for the saudis i'm not cer- certain it's all that bad for the rest of the world either so that's that's a good thing in a in a way but at some point if they if all of a sudden there's a mad rush huge demand growth i'm not certain if the if the price isn't going to go up again to like eighty or ninety dollars a barrel in which case that will definitely invite American producers back into the market and shale oil which is which is more expensive to produce per barrel? will will come into the the equation again, and they will start producing an, an enormous amount of oil out of the Bak- out of the Permian Basin and the Bakken and and other reservoirs in the United States. The at one point in time the reservoirs down the down in Southwest Texas was by far and away the largest oil producing field in the world, even larger than the than the Saudis. It was difficult to comprehend that case, but it's all shale oil, all shale oil. Pretty, pretty amazing to say the least.
0: Are there any problems when we talk about that? You know, I would say a couple months where demand was just flat. Well, I fell off a cliff and flatlined for a while. Yep. And you yep. talk about OPEC pulling back stuff like that. Are there any problems? Cause something like that, I think on a global scale is unprecedented. Are there any problems that has presented that we still haven't figured out? how to to work through just from a logistics standpoint or did everybody kind of find their pace to deal with that and ease out any problems that
1: may have emerged Uh, good question so the the fact of the matter is there has been constantly booms and busts in the oil industry and in some ways they're used to it i mean there was uh, uh booms and busts in the 70s and 80s I, I, I suspect you're a little bit younger than me, but I do remember that in the 70s, there was these oil crunches where there was 73 or 72, there was Arab oil embargo, and then 79 was the uh, uh, Iranian Revolution. And those were two big oil shocks. And literally overnight, we went from driving these big boats that we called cars with huge V8 engine, lousy gas mileage, you know, nine to 10 miles per gallon. And all, all of a sudden, they all disappeared. And everybody was driving a small car. I remember that very distinctly in the 1980s. So, so demand dropped off, and by the way, the price of oil plummeted at that point in time, in the mid 80s. There's a worldwide recession, in part driven because of very high uh, oil uh, costs, high energy costs, I should say. And all of a sudden, there was just all these small cars. It was just, it was just remarkable. The United States was like a European country with all these small cars, and then again, overnight, because of the oil prices and, and then the recession. Wayne and we had growth again all of a sudden big cars started showing up and i remember very distinctly driving on i95 looking around seeing all these old small cars and i saw a toyota go by and i said god that toyota is really big and so toyota had figured out and it, so have all the the foreign car makers it's it's a lot more profitable to make a big car and that's exactly what they did And the v8 engine never died the v8 engine is very doing very well and people are just But even then, there has been downturns and upturns. Even recently, 2005 was a big one. There was a big downturn in uh, 2009. More recently, around 2015, there was massive layoffs because, again, the the Saudis were trying to – the OPEC was trying to control the market. And there was on the order of probably about 50 to 100,000 petroleum engineers that were laid off at that point in time. And they've come back, a kind of market that is very cyclical. And, and I'll tell you, to, for me to try to look into a crisp ball and tell you what's going to happen, boy, I, that's, that's that's nuts. But be that it may, I can make guesses and everybody else, and probably everybody will disagree. But I can tell you that the Saudis and OPEC are really controlling the market very well right now in a sense because it's right at $60 a barrel, which some critics were saying we'd never get to that until after the pandemic but here we are still in the pandemic it may go up higher but if saudis have anything to do with it, they'll try to moderate that price try and increase production and they have the capability to do that so that the americans won't charge in again with shale oil
0: it's interesting we're in a moment where we are i think cautiously optimistic in a few months we're going to get life relatively close back to where we were We have an administration now that is very receptive to renewable energy, green energy, as opposed to the Trump administration, which fought that on every front. And, I mean, you would obviously know much better than I, but as a layman, it appears we have market forces that are trending towards wanting renewable, wanting cleaner energy. When we talk about trying – you talk about how difficult it is to try to predict. On the front of green renewable Mm -hmm. energy, though – Could we see some things coming together that would really push it in that direction and see growth in that sector like we've never seen
1: before? Absolutely. There already has been. Remarkably, during the pandemic, there has been a really retreat away from coal-powered electricity. It's because they realize a lot of the coal burners, coal-powered fire plants, there are a lot of hidden costs associated with that. There's scrubbers and things like that, and it's just environmentally. And more importantly, is natural gas still is relatively inexpensive it, uh, about a year ago it was less than two dollars million uh, BTUs, it, it, and that's, that's incredibly low. As a matter of fact, the natural gas producers, particularly in the Marcellus shale, and there is some gas coming out of the other reservoirs where they have oil, that gas tends to be a local market in the United States, but they can now generate electricity, and this has always been the case using turbine generators, so they're actually fairly small fo- footprints piece of equipment. And because natural gas is so cheap, all of a sudden it's cheaper to run a gas turbine than it is to run a coal-fired power plant. And so consequently, a lot of the utilities say, why are we running coal-fired power plants? There's a lot of hidden costs here. But more importantly, we can put in gas turbines cheaper and a little bit more incrementally. That is, you don't have to put in a 500-megawatt facility. You can put in a 50 megawatt facilities so you can actually add facilities as necessary and they don't have big footprints there's no scrubbers you just pipe in the natural gas and the efficiencies are actually getting really good like on the order of 60 percent, because they have basically co-generation there's there's a, a additional heat reclamation in the in the cycle thermal cycle it it's really looking good so all of a sudden a lot of the utilities are going away from coal and really entrenched in in natural gas Natural gas prices have come up to about $2.85 per million BTUs. That's still not bad. That's pretty good. The question is, as we come out of this and economic activity builds again, will the companies, utility companies, go back to the coal power, plant power plants? I hope not because the, you get a big kick out of getting away from coal because coal is much less efficient. It's environmentally damaging, no question whatsoever. There are emissions of heavy metals that are not good for you. Beyond that, if you can get, get the economics right, and that's what's really driving the market right now, is, is economics. It's not the government saying they have to do this. It's like people, the, the utility companies, I realize it's cheaper to run natural gas in these turbine generators, right? As a matter of fact, when you go down I-95, I don't know if you've been just south of uh, Richmond, Virginia, just on the uh, the west side of I-95, you'll see about three or four of these uh, natural gas turbine generators. Matter of fact, for my petroleum engineering course, I'll, I'll take uh, a Google overhead Google map shot of what uh, they look like. And they're actually really small. It's pretty amazing how, how much power they can produce for a small footprint. So what I'm saying is that despite the Trump's administration not wanting to, you know, uh, help renewables or reduce our carbon footprint, that was happening anyways, that reduction, simply because the ec- economics are there. And that's going to continue, to be honest with you, the amount of renewables that have actually accelerated during the pandemic. That is the amount of particularly wind power has actually uh, increased on an absolute basis. And it's because wind is still land on land, wind power generation is still the cheapest power around. It's it's on the order of like two or three cents a kilowatt hour. And that's really cheap now. And, and also you have the benefit of putting capacity in incrementally. In order to gain the economic the scale of economics, you have to put in a very large coal-fired power plant, like 500 megawatts. And that's, that's like a billion-dollar investment, right? These windmills, no, it's like $25 million per, per windmill. It, it's not a lot of capacity, but that's okay. And you can keep on adding them as demand increases, okay? More importantly, these windmills, oh my gosh, they are getting so efficient. So the larger the, the span of the, the blades, the higher the efficiency, right? And all of a sudden, that's exactly what a lot of these manufacturers are going for. They're getting larger and larger generators on these things. And your, your pay, the payback times are just, are just unheard of. So this is economics now. You invest a certain amount of money for the windmill, you, you put it up, and you start it, and you can get your money back literally in about four to six months. I mean, that's – and for a piece of equipment that's gone lost for 20 years, 30 years, oh, my gosh, that's great. More importantly, there's something called energy return on energy invested. It's a little bit like money being invested, but think of energy being invested in something and expecting a return for that. So it's a ratio. So you take a, a facility that you build, and there's a certain energy cost to building that. That's the steel that went in and actually putting it in place and everything. And and so you calculate how much energy that that was needed to to actually put that facility in operation, okay? And then you calculate how much energy it was going to generate over its lifetime. Holy smokes. These wind power facilities on land, it's like 30 to 40 times payback. So for every kilowatt hour of energy you put into a windmill, you're going to get 30 to 40 kilowatt hours out. Just amazing. Just really good. Now, solar cells are actually getting even better, too. So solar cells used to be payback on the order of, again, this energy return on energy invested, on the order of about 10 or 5, something like that. It, it's getting much higher now. And that's because it's, uh, solar efficiencies are getting much better. So for example, I have 30 panels on my roof. So we, we actually have electricity coming up from the sun on our house. So it sounds sort of odd for a guy that, sort of a petroleum engineer, but that's beside the point. I also have an electric car, believe it or not. So we have 30 panels up there. They were installed about 11 years ago. Those panels' nominal efficiency is about 10%. You can go out right now and pie basically same size panels. They're all about standard size for twice as much efficiency, 20%. And that means that my 6-kilowatt array, if I put new panels up there, would be a 12-kilowatt array. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's a, that's I wouldn't know what to do with the energy. Right. It's just amazing. So, again, what I'm trying to say is, yes, the government has a responsibility to a certain extent to make certain to push an agenda of renewables because there is climate change. But economics are going to drive it to and probably much more efficiently in some ways, even if Trump was still in office. Those economics, he would not be able to, to, to curtail because the economics are, are what they are. And people are going to go to the lowest cost uh, energy, right? One of the things that, that Biden has, what he's putting back in place is these standards, these, en- these standards for energy gas mileage for vehicles, right? So Trump didn't want to have anything to do with that. He really relaxed them to a certain extent or wanted to relax them. They're being, they were being challenged in court. Now Biden is putting them back in place, right? The government can try to put in these requirements for the, all the autos in a, in a certain fleet to have a certain gas mileage, right? And they're getting more and more aggressive, right? The issue is getting people to buy those vehicles. The perception is that the vehicles, the electric vehicles, particularly either plug-in electric hybrids or straight electric vehicles, are very expensive. And people are really reluctant to buy them. There was a study by MIT. It shows basically the cost to operate your vehicle. And that includes maintenance costs, capital investment, blah, 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 versus its carbon footprint. Right. So the idea is that you want to have the car to be the lowest cost for the consumer. So you want to go to the to zero. But but for the government, they want to go as low as possible in terms of the, the carbon footprint. Right. Amazing. The electric vehicles actually were as cheap as a gasoline-powered cars, okay? And it's because there's all this maintenance that you don't have with electric vehicles, literally. So so the brakes last forever. There's no exhaust or fuel emissions. It's, in fact, in reality, people think, oh, electric cars are really complicated. They actually aren't, okay? You think about a gasoline-powered car. You have an engine, and that has a lot of moving parts that wear... You have an exhaust system. You have a catalytic converter. You have a fuel system. You have a fuel pump. You have, And, and the only way to brake the car is to apply brakes, and you're wasting heat and, and friction, and those brakes will wear out, blah, blah, blah. In contrast, electric vehicle, there's one or two motors, two motors, each attached to each of the wheels, if it's a front-wheel drive. There's no fuel system. Okay, there's wires connecting the battery pack to the electric motors. No big deal. The brakes, they last forever because – it's the generators that act as a brake. So you, when you apply your brakes, you're actually not applying the brakes mechanically. You're actually telling the generators to pull energy out of the, the, your forward momentum and recharge the batteries. So it's regenerative braking. Great way to save your brakes because you're not really applying them. The concept is is really the electric vehicles are really actually pretty simple to build. The problem with the costs are the batteries. Battery technology is evolving. It's actually – it's not going to be a revolutionary change, but in the last next five years, you will see battery prices plummet, and all of a sudden electric cars are going to be dirt cheap, okay? And people, I think, will be willing to buy them. So there again, there's the economics coming in. People make decisions. People vote with their dollars. And when the economics are right, they will go to the right thing as long as the economics are there. If electric vehicles were not economically viable based on us voting our dollars, they would not come to fruition in this country or any place in the world. But it's going to happen because the battery prices are going to come down. It's really simple to make an electric vehicle. Then you're you're faced with, okay, what about charging stations? What about charging times? The fact of the matter is there's a lot of different ways to look at it. The Chinese are remarkably And this is not a new idea. It was it's been floated in the United States. They actually have electric cars. And so, okay, the range of the car might be 200 miles or 250 miles, something like that. But you want to travel. You know, my wife and I have traveled a thousand miles in a day. How would you do that with an electric car? Right now, you probably couldn't do that. But in China, they get in their car, drive the 250 miles and and there's a station. They pull into the station. They actually don't wait to charge up the battery which might take on, depending on the, the current load, may take you know three to four hours, right? They change out the batteries. So now think about these electric cars. And now these are these huge D-cell batteries you just pop out and you put back in, right? That's amazing, right? And that's a, do, a, a concept that had been floated by Elon Musk. How, whether that ever gets traction or not, I don't know, but it takes maybe five or 10 minutes to if you design it right to pop out the batteries, put new batteries in. And off you go. Another 250 miles later, pop out the batteries, put new batteries in. Go out and keep on going. Now, the ones that you pulled out, of course, they're just going to get charged up. And the next customer that comes around in another five hours, guess what? Those are his batteries now. They get popped in, and he'll, his will be taken out and recharged. Pretty slick idea. There is no infrastructure for doing that right now in the United States. There wasn't in, in China either, and there's not much of one in China either. But with that being built, there will be more acceptance, for using electric vehicles. We will get there. It will take time. The government can say that we have to do certain things, but it's the people paying with their dollars, voting with their dollars that will dictate what's going to happen. There's a, there's a saying that I have heard back in the 70s, and I repeat it to the, to the petroleum engineering class, and it goes like this. We have met, met the enemy, and the enemy is us. So in other words, when you go out and you drive around, you say, oh, look at all these cars, these the biggest selling vehicle right now, Ford F-150, I think it still is. But the biggest market segment is pickup trucks. You know what kind of gas mileage pickup trucks get? Pretty bad, like 15 miles to the gallon. And do I don't know what the mindset of those people are that drive pickup trucks are. But I'm guessing, you know, they really poo-pooed the idea about getting an electric vehicle. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's hope I'm wrong. But the fact of the matter is, driving a pickup truck right now to them... Is they voting for their dollars? To them, it's worth it. And they don't care the fact that its carbon emissions are out the, the roof. They don't care. OK, somehow the economics have to change to make people care. Maybe they don't believe in climate change, but they believe when money is going out their pocket. So somehow, in, in a sense, of, now, now I'm going to sound like a flaming liberal here. The cost, the, the price we pay for energy should really reflect the ultimate cost to society. It does not right now, okay? So the price we pay for gasoline filling up our car does not necessarily reflect the ultimate cost of that carbon emission and the, the change and the potential change in climate as a result of the carbon emission and carbon CO2 emission. How do we make it that better? That, in my opinion, is the $50 million question. When any, anybody ever talks about carbon tax, Oh, boy. Oh, boy. People go nuts. Oh, no! we don't need another tax. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. But somehow, some way, again, you go back to the concept that people vote with their dollars. They make decisions based on what their perceived economics are, economic situation. So as soon as people perceive, for example, that electric cars are much more efficient or much less, are much more economic to run than a gasoline powered car people will start migrating more and more to electric vehicles. They're, they're, they're cool right now, but I think people are going to realize, gee, there's, there's hardly any maintenance with these things. Boy, that's great. And, and the word's getting out there, okay? And and that's MIT study will, will help do that, right? But it's other people where they really don't care, but somehow the price we pay for goods and service has to reflect the ultimate cost of society. How we do that is how is in part, the administration, and I, I'm, not, not, I'm not certain what else. I probably just talked too long, but that's a thing.
0: A lot of things are pointing in the direction of green and renewable. and yes. A lot of smart people, OPEC, oil producers, have to see that. Do you see them fighting to keep their market share, or do they see which ways the wind's blowing adjust? And what does that adjustment look like?
1: So just recently, I think, like, came out in the news like two days ago. This sort of answers your question. Some multinational oil companies are getting the message. They realize they've been hurt through this pandemic, and they're looking ahead and saying, what does the energy landscape is? And this is an important question. What really is our business? The fact of the matter is I would submit the petroleum companies, multinationals, ExxonMobil, BP, whoever, their business is not petroleum, it's energy. Once they realize that their business is energy, then all of a sudden, it's a different mindset. And in fact, it has happened already. So two major oil companies, Total, which is a French oil companies, and BP, just recently won bids for offshore leases not for oil, for, for putting up uh, windmills, okay? This is off the coast of England and Ireland at, at a price that a lot of people were really shocked at. It's like, what, what's going on? But it was the mindset of the oil industry knowing this is a sure bet. We know we can get energy out. There's no question whatsoever. They're not gonna drill a dry hole by putting up a windmill out in the ocean where the, they know what the wind is. They know how much power they're gonna, gonna make. I mean, this is a sure bet. They aren't necessarily used to that. They usually like to drill a hole and they aren't certain whether they're going to ever get oil out. So consequently, to have a sure bet like this, oh my gosh, it's in a sense, it's a gusher. Every time you drill a well, or more importantly, you erect a windmill, you're going to make lots of, lots of energy, lots of money, right? And you're going to get a payback on the order of six months. Well, for offshore, it's a little bit longer about a year. And guess what? This is, this is really, really cool. The technology that these oil companies all know very, very well for putting out oil platforms out in the middle of the ocean, guess what? It's the same technology to erect a, a windmill out in the middle of the ocean. Amazing. It's, it's somewhat some of the same equipment. It really is cool. As matter of fact, there's a picture I showed in the, the class where this this uh, boat is fixed out with all the stuff, and it looks like it's going to be putting out an oil, derrick in the middle of the ocean. It's not. You can look at it carefully and say, oh, those are parts for windmills. It's pretty cool. So some of the multinational corporations are getting the message, OK? ExxonMobil has a big, now, I, I'm not certain how real this is, but certainly they've got a big emphasis in terms of trying to make renewable energy out of algae. Maybe they'll be successful. They may, Maybe they'll dry a, drill a dry hole. Who knows? But companies are investing renewable energies because I, I like to think they see it as the fact that this is their business, energy is their business. Okay, what's going to happen with Saudi Arabia and other countries is a darn good question. I assume that they do not believe in, in climate change. Maybe they do. I don't know. They do believe that they want to push their society up, so uh, and, and bring it to another level, become a developed nation essentially. And they're investing heavily in their people and their infrastructure to, in fact, get away from oil. Believe it or not, so they're they're trying desperately. They realize that oil is not going to necessarily last forever, but more importantly, can they invest in their, company, uh, in their country so that they can bring their standard living up and they can be a developed nation? This is sort of a aside. Uh, there was just an Arab con- country that shot back in July, or yeah, back in July, a probe to go to Mars. It was the first Arab country ever to do this, and that probe has just gone into orbit around Mars. It was a big deal. It just shows you they're trying to bring themselves up to match other nations, to be a developed nation, technologically advanced, and and they're doing it. They're doing it. How it plays out in terms of how they see themselves as an energy producer, certainly the multinational oil companies have to see themselves as an energy company, not as an oil company or a natural gas company. Once they see that, they will pivot and they'll realize this is really their business, how the OPEC countries develop. It's another good question. I don't know, because they have very significant national interest, not necessarily, they don't necessarily see their business as producing oil or gas. It's they see their business as bringing their country up to a different standard of living. Sort of interesting.
0: It for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.